Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It's Christmas, and if we had a higher budget, we'd probably insert some sound bites from various Christmas movies and TV shows. And if we had any musical talent, we'd insert some homemade Christmas music. But alas, instead, I have a most excellent Christmas present for you. A conversation with historian Paul Mackenzie Jones. Dr. Mackenzie Jones teaches history, and his focus is on political activism among Native Americans and other indigenous peoples around the world. Let's get to it. What is your name and what do you do? Okay, so I am uh, Paul Mackenzie Jones. I'm an associate professor of, well, I'm an historian, but I'm an associate professor of indigenous studies. So I sort of crossed over a little bit. Um, my primary research focus has always been indigenous history, which has morphed slightly. I originally started with Native American history specifically, and now I look more closely at indigenous history, cross comparative and connected, interconnected indigenous history in the Anglo settler states. So that would really be Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and uh, the United States. And primarily, Sorry, yeah, primarily to the 20th and 21st century activism, uh, indigenous activism in those states. Oh, great. So I'm looking forward to uh, hearing some more about that as we go along. But um, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, academic and professional background? Oh, so academic and professional background, I'm originally from Liverpool in England. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a strange journey to get here because I honestly had no intention <laughs> of ever doing this for a living. It was... A case of I, I for various reasons when I first left school at eighteen I missed out on going to university, um, so I didn't actually go to university as an undergrad till I was thirty years old, um, and at that point I noticed there was a great Americanization of of British life. You know, TV shops, everything was sort of dominated by the United States, so I decided to take a course in. Um, American studies. From there, my interest in indigenous history developed, or Native American history developed. I moved to the University of Glasgow to do a master's degree in Scotland. They had an exchange program with the University of Oklahoma, which I originally went there. It was supposed to be for a single semester. Uh, that was in 2005. And here I am, 15 years later, <laughs> uh, with a PhD, now an associate professor teaching indigenous history. Uh, so yeah, it was. I had no idea. I just wanted to figure out what the United States was all about and why it was dominating sort of the world, and that ended up leading me on this path. It was, I think, it was probably in the last two years of my undergraduate degree when I started to get do independent studies that I really got a taste of research, and that's when I really thought I wanted to take this further, and that just kept me going. And then from the University of Oklahoma. Uh, that's where I got my PhD, and then uh, professionally, I spent my first year out of grad school teaching at a tribal college as an adjunct, and also as a private at a private um, Catholic school in Oklahoma, which is now shut down because the job market was so difficult. And at the end of that first year, I was actually on the verge of um, giving up, and because the job market was so bad and taking a uh, a manager's pos p uh, position at a local video rental store. And 
the week before I I accepted the job, I got offered a temporary position at the University of Illinois, and I've been a steadily movement north since then to Montana, and currently in southern Alberta. So it's been a long and weird trajectory of of I could say there was a grand scheme of things, but it wouldn't be true. It was sort of <laughs> I've just bounced along and found somewhere that you know, yeah, just you know, it's worked out somehow by luck or by the skin of my teeth, and you know, I finally sort of settled into a position now. So yeah. So you say you came to the U.S. trying to figure out the U.S. Yeah, you know, in 2020, I can't even figure out what the no, U.S. It, is. Yeah. <laughs> I think once I actually got here, I got even more confused. <laughs> I've been here my whole life. My research specialty is in modern U.S., and I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so what, when you were working on your, so you said that you're interested in uh, indigenous studies. Was that true when you were in Glasgow and elsewhere? Was that one of your earliest interests, or did you did you kind of did your your interests kind of evolve also? Well, that picked up in I think it was third year undergrad. We did a we did a course in the American West, and during the course, you know, I grew up with everybody else with the sort of you know the westerns, and you know, my granddad was a huge John Wayne for. John Wayne fan, so I'd always grown up around watching westerns in the TV in the background and what have you. So I expected there to be, I mean, for want of a better phrase, I expected to see cowboys and Indians in this. You know, this is me from England, you know, not knowing any better. I figured the American West, that's what it's going to be. And it was a week at the very end of the semester, we were looking at art of the American West, those, you know, those famous landscapes that people made, especially mm-hmm. when they started you know, like they accompanied the artist and they made these sort of iconic American landscapes of settlement. And the the, the instructor, the professor said, if you look closely in a corner, you'll see an Indian village. And that was it for the entire semester. <laughs> and that left me just, you know, I was like, that can't seriously be it. So, you know, the structure is slightly different there in that when I'd first gone into the American Studies program, I'd been assigned a professor as my advisor so to, so to speak at the same time so i went to him and said listen this really frustrated me and he turned me in he turned me on to the idea of doing uh, the independent learnings and that's where i sort of really started to or independent research and that's where i really started to pick up this interest of um you know native american history but then when i got to and then the the focus of the master's degree in glasgow was the american west so there were more of it there because one of the professors there had worked at the Kelvin Hall Museum, which has a huge Western collection in Glasgow, you know, from um, from the Buffalo Bill shows and things like this. There's lots of stuff there. So she'd worked, she'd previously worked at that museum. So she had this Native American history that she brought, you know, working in Native, Native American history, so slightly that she brought with her. Um, and when I got to the University of Oklahoma, I sort of turned up still really quite blank. Just said, okay, I want to learn Native American history, but I don't want to do the old stuff because, you know, in England we get a lot of what is classified as colonial history in the US. You know, we get fed kings and queens on a daily basis in school in England. So I didn't want to do any more kings or queens or empires or anything like that. Uh, so I said, you know, I don't want to, all that early American history doesn't really interest me. I want more modern stuff. 
Um, the professor I was with, who I, you know, I got to work with, Warren Metcalf, he's very much a 20th century Native American history. And from there, you know, I developed, I sort of latched on to uh, you know, the activism of the 1960s and to the present day. So even that, again, it wasn't planned. It sort of grew. It's very much an organic interest that grew and developed. And it's still very much a learning process all the time. And so you said that you're, uh, as you're working on your dissertation and all that, you started looking into like Native American activism. Did, did I hear you correctly? Yeah, there? yeah, yeah. Okay. And is it what, is there a specific time period or a location? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, like the Red Power movement and the occupation of Alcatraz and all that, but is that kind of where you're, where you're going or are you thinking of a different era? Well, I actually went, I went earlier than that because this is one of the, it's, it's one of the things that ended up frustrating me is that, um, I was assigned, you know, a lot of that. I did a fair few directed readings, and a lot of the books focus on the occupation of Alcatraz as the beginning of of um, the Red Power movement. And yet, there was a figure in these books, um, Clyde Warrior, an activist from um, Oklahoma, that really stood out to me. And he's someone who died in 1968, which is the year before the occupation of Alcatraz, and so. He was discussed as being this really influential and really sort of, you know, important figure, but then overlooked because he died in 1968 before the occupation of Alcatraz. So that's where my research took me. I was like, okay, I want to know more about this guy. And yeah. I ended up with my first book, which came out in 2015, was a biography of Clyde Warrior. And what I've argued, and, so, and, and I've had, there's been a lot of positive reviews from it since, is that, you know, he really was the ideological, he's the person who came up with the phrase red power, you know, the actual phrase itself, after hearing Stokely Carmichael give the speech about black power in 1966. Um, And the long trajectory of his activism in the National Indian Youth Council, which was formed in 1961. So there was a whole decade of what we consider to be activism in a sort of modern terminology, that was being ignored if we have the starting point as 1969 and Alcatraz. But then if you look further into it, this, you know, whether you look at Alcatraz or whether you look at the National Indian Youth Council, they're both parts of a longer trajectory of resistance and activism that goes essentially all the way back to, to contact with the Europeans. So it's, it's, it's red power as an iconic moment in and of itself, which I strove to bring forward 10 years earlier but also red power itself is just part of a much longer history of resistance that somehow or other often gets ignored and broken down into these you know separate movements and rarely they're not the sort of all in connected and they all inspire each other well that's yeah that's really interesting so it's in many ways, this sounds like it's kind of parallel to, of course, the study of the the Black Civil Rights Movement, where yeah. t- people tend to think of there's like, like the high period of like 54 to 65 with yeah. the Voting Rights Act. But in reality, of course, it, it it's not like it was only existed for that 10-year period. It's, it's, it was obviously uh, kind of building up for a long time oh, yeah, before yeah, that with exactly. yeah. NAACP and all that. So it, it makes perfect sense that that would be the same would be true for um, the Red Power Movement or Native American civil rights. Um, 
so what types of activities was was this guy involved in? Was he kind of emulating like nonviolent resistance, kind of like the Martin Luther King model, or what? What was uh, what was his strategy? Well, the strategy was there was a lot of um, there were what were called um, youth councils at the time. But so there was a lot of radical student speeches going on across the Southwest and, and including Oklahoma. Um, and from there, so there was a lot of uh, sort of you know these, these speeches, these talks of protest. And what sort of what surprised me at the time, and I think it's it's more a reflection of the '60s as a moment as opposed to you know just Native American history in that moment, is how often these young students, whether it be you know black, Native American, um, or white got to speak directly to, you know, presidents and vice presidents. And a part of it is the sort of the, the Johnson's war on poverty and the programs that were set up there. And he was very critical of these, of these war on poverty programs. And himself and one of the other fellow founder members, Mel Tom, who's Paiute, um, actually spoke at a conference before, um, oh, his name escapes me, the, Johnson's vice president, um, and and it was quite a radical speech. And he turned around and said to the vice president, "You know, you keep you're trying to make us go away, and we're not going anywhere. We're here to stay, and we're never going to disappear." Which seems quite tame, but in the framework of the 1960s, was was sort of seemingly radical, saying this directly to the vice president of the United States. Um, and there was a lot of intellectual rhetoric, you know, sort of um, if you think of later more iconic figures such as John Trudell who came out of Alcatraz, the arguments he made about, you know, there was no such word as Indian before a white man turned up. Clyde Warrior was making that same argument a decade earlier, saying, you know, this idea of, of the American Indian is a complete fiction. There's no such thing as an American Indian. American Indian is a figment of white people's imagination. You know, we are Ponga, we are Paiute, we are you know, whatever the nation state, their na- you know, indigenous nation, na- indigenous nation name was was their identity. Um, but he was also very much involved in cultural motifs within the the activism itself. So the National Indian Youth Council insisted that they had all their annual meetings on reservations or in reserves rather than sort of you know hotels. Um, they went to communities. They argued for more radical resistance towards um, the power structures. And one of the sort of possibly the most iconic moments of resistance before Alcatraz was the 1963 fishings in Washington State. And these are mm-hmm. this is something else that had been going on for a few years. So they, the National Indian Youth Council and Clyde Warrior didn't start these, but they got involved because of a. a fellow member called Hank Adams, who's another iconic figure in the you know, the long history of, of modern um, indigenous activism. And they had these huge fishings where you know, the, 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 the Puyallup fishermen of Washington State and the Nisqually River were being stopped from fishing by indig- uh, um, industrial fisheries 
and the Washington state was trying to fine them and trying to put them in jail. And they argued that we have a treaty that pre, you know, that gives us the right to fish in our usual and traditional homelands. And the counter argument was, well, that is on your reservation. And they say, no, this, this treaty existed before the state of Washington was even, you know, existed. So they, they had this huge protest where 3000 uh, American Indians from all over the country came and lined the banks of the rivers as the fish as the you know indigenous fishermen went out and caught fish and were immediately caught you know arrested by the police um and sort of weird the way the pop culture interjects with all this is that they were actually friends with marlon brando and marlon brando was one of the boats and got arrested and so it made global news because marlon brando's being arrested for fishing in this river with these with these native americans and it elevated fishing and treaty rights to sort of the, the you know the the common discourse around uh, conversations about civil rights separate from you know, African-American civil rights. So there were multiple tactics they employed. You know, you've got peaceful protest, you've got essentially a blockade with thousands of people lying in these riverbanks. Um, and then you've got sort of the speeches and the, the very political rhetoric of one of his most famous lines was when he was going up for president of... Uh, one of the youth councils very early in his sort of, I suppose, career as a as an activist, for want of a better phrase, he just got up on stage and said, you know, I'm a full punker Indian, the sewage of Europe doesn't run through these veins. And he won the vote on the landslide. And again, that was in 1961, which for its time frame is, is very radical language. You know, yeah. pushing back and speaking out against the white power structures that, you know, controlled every aspect of, of Native American life at that point in time. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you're studying this and talking about it because it does, unfortunately kind of seem to get overshadowed a bit by the uh, black civil rights movement, especially, you know, in mainstream kind of popular culture, yeah. um, uh, conventional wisdom and all of that. But, and I'm trying while you were talking, I was trying to think about why that is. And I'm wondering, is it partially because Native Americans had been kind of pushed aside into reservations and they weren't really interacting with, um, with, with whites the same way that blacks were, if they were living in the same city as whites, was it kind of a, it was still a form of segregation, but was it a, because they had been so effectively pushed out into kind of undesirable plots of land and they weren't, there just wasn't as much interaction. So there wasn't, weren't as many TV cameras around. Do you have any idea why that might be? To a certain degree, but by that point in the 1960s, um, there was also a huge number of, of urbanized indigenous people. Um, mm-hmm. Denver, Chicago, um, you know, Gallup, New Mexico, some of the some large cities had Dallas, Texas, had like you know huge numbers of or, or you know talking like tens of thousands uh, of uh, American Indians living within the cities, and. Part of it is, I mean, if you look at a traditional, it's the, it's sort of the rhetoric of American settlement um, and the mythology. So if, we, if we're talking as historians, part of it is partly Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis is to blame because, you know, <laughs> we know that became a cornerstone of teaching the American West for almost 60 years, mm-hmm. which, and, and he in that thesis almost, eradicates indigenous people from the conversation um if you look at most textbooks even today 
you'll see the end of the Indian Wars being, you know, the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890. Yes. And that's essentially the end of American Indians in the history textbooks. Yes. You, know, you don't then see, you'll, you'll get, if you get to the, so yeah, you'll get to the civil rights movement and you may get, I think most of them, the last time I looked, carried a single paragraph at the end of the chapter. They said, oh yeah, and while this is going on, uh, American Indians occupied Alcatraz and Chicanos were also looking at, you know, sort of racial equality. And that's it. It's, it's yeah. The sole focus is on black civil rights. And I think part of it is population. I think you, uh, American Indians or Native Americans or indigenous people, you know, constitute probably between 3 and 5% of the population right now in the United States. So in the 1960s, it was lower. In 1961, the grand total of indigenous students in American universities was three and a half thousand. You know, so oh, wow. that's, there was literally very few in, in higher education. Um, and the, the assimilation policies were still in full force. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s, the twin policies going on with the termination policy where the government was literally trying to cut its responsibility from treaty you know the it's treaty responsibilities and pass it all off onto the states individual states and at the same time was the um, relocation program which was well we'll try and get people from the reservations we'll promise them these great lives in the cities and then hopefully they'll just assimilate and disappear so there was still very much uh, a determination to fully assimilate indigenous people from you know the landscape so to speak to make settlement complete and you've also got at the same time you know sort of one of the common controversies is um, your mascot issue you know we see this with the with the washington team and we see this with the, mm-hmm. the kansas and the, and the tomahawk chopper i think it's kansas um and that's something that started in 19 the early 1900s you know, as a result of people being convinced that American Indians had completely disappeared, almost as soon as sort of that happened, that that, that this conviction that oh, all these people have now gone, they disappeared. This celebration of this doomed but noble race entered the American popular the, Amer- the American imagination, and that's when we started to get these, sort of like the Red Man's Club of New York, I think was the first, and it was all these white rich white guys who dressed up, and and you know. Native American regalia and danced around, and then they started to do it at, at you know mascots uh, at sports teams, sort of, and the honouring was the honouring of this lost and noble race that were once here and now had disappeared, and that's a very hard myth to shake off, even yeah. you know especially as in school you're being taught the the sort of Turnerian version of westward settlement in which you know the indigenous population disappeared to make way for the white population so it's sort of a combination of multiple things and you know yet there was still you know a large number of, of indigenous people living on reservations but even today it's somewhere the, the population the demographic split is something like 70 percent of all indigenous people in the united states live in cities and only 30% live on reservations. But the vast majority of Americans are still convinced that all Native Americans live on reservations. 
So it's still that perpetuating mythology that, that, that is really hard to, to shake. And it, and it, it exacerbates the invisibility. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's, um, it's another reason I'm glad I'm glad you're I'm glad you're studying this because this is something that that I wish people knew more about because it is I think I I you're I think you're right that that a big part of it is that they've just been become kind of invisible and I, like you said going all the way back to Frederick Jackson Turner who of course was arguing that you know white people were going into this you know virgin wilderness that was untouched by man when the reality of it is that no the vast majority of North America of course had been touched by man there had been Native Americans all over the place for thousands of years and they'd been doing all kinds of uh, all kinds of really cool things and so, but but yeah the this this myth that they're so it's kind of created this weird kind of dynamic in American history where they're Native Americans are there, but they're also not. They're they're there as obstacles. They are there as you know harassers of people going out to the West, but they also don't really actually exist. It feels like, especially when you look at it from like the ter- the the textbook perspective, because you're you're totally right. Though every textbook I've seen, basically after Wounded Knee. Indians just disappear, <laughs> except for maybe maybe there'll be a sentence about the New Deal where which will say that you know Indians along with everybody else didn't get anything out of it or something yeah, like that, yeah, and yeah. and then you get to uh, and then and then like you said there'll be a little sentence or two on Alcatraz, um, and then they disappear after that again. So it, it it is kind of this this weird dynamic where Native Americans, yeah, they've they have been disappeared from our story. But they are also still there. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that's going to be hard to reconcile. Persistent historical footnoting. Yeah, even yeah, even, even at the present time. Yeah. And so you you talked earlier about how you have also been looking at uh, indigenous studies in other areas of the world. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that? How did that come about, and how does that fit with what you've been studying with Native Americans? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's sort of again, it's it's similar in the the. When I was studying Clyde Warrior and I started to see, you know, that these um, conversations were taking place and references were being made to, you know, the, originally it was something that they were, they were latching onto the decolonial movements that were taking place in Africa. And so they were refer- referencing the Mau Mau movement in Kenya, um, you know, and, play, and events like this. But then eventually we start to see that the, there were similar movements of resistance and, you know, reclamation of land or, or desire to reclaim land and sovereignty that were taking place in, you know, what we think of as the Anglo settler states, you know, which all have this common connection of, of you know, coming from the English, you know, coming from the British Empire. Um, and so as I started to look into it, and you start to see, you know, I noticed that there were, there's a very much sort of a contemporary framing of this with um, what's been happening at Standing Rock, um, you know, the sort of alliances that were taking place there. And then it, so you go back and you see that, okay, this is not something that really has started just now. And then if we go, you know, we look again to sort of the, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and you trace the trajectory of that back, you see that this really is a collaboration among indigenous people across the world that sort of push, they work together to push, you know, the United Nations didn't cooperate this on their own. 
but this was not sort of something that they decided themselves that they could, you know, this is what we need to do. It was very much pushed by indigenous activists. And then as you start to, you know, you start to look more closely, you see that there was the, a lot of the rhetoric was borrowed and sort of influenced from each other across these various nations. And people are reaching out and talking to each other and connecting with each other. And so again, we look at these moments as taking place right now. And because of these sort of relative footnoting in history, there were a lot of people who were like, well, why is this suddenly happening now? And it's not suddenly happening now. It's actually been happening for a long time. It's just that because we now have, you know, greater access to information with, say, the internet, um, you know, social media, it's actually being a lot, we're actually seeing a lot more of it than we previously would have done. So it's sort of people are becoming more aware of it and just assuming that it's new, when it's actually not. It's been, you know, these collaborations have been around for a long time. And so you can look at sort of, you know, if you look back to 1974, at the height of the American Indian movement, there's also the International the Indian Inter, International Indian Treaty Alliance, which is one of the foregrounders for the organisations that went to work with the United Nations to push, you know, for for treaty rights. Um, there's the World Council on Indigenous Peoples, which included people from Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and also South and you know Indigenous communities in South and Central America. So these are long-standing international um, communities. And what they started to realize is that many of the policies that they had previously assumed were imposed upon them were also being imposed at the same time elsewhere. So, you know, in... The United States, we've got the residential, the, the, the boarding school system, um, and the resident, you know, the, and the reservations, and almost exactly the same time, you have reserves being created in Canada, and um, residential schools. At the same time, you have these um, civilization schools in New Zealand, and at the same time, you've got the uh, the um, Aboriginal committee, the, the committee set up to help Aboriginal people uh, and what became known as the Stolen Generation in Australia. So all these sort of assimilationist policies and programs are all being created within the space of three or four or five years of each other across all these settler states. And, you know, in Australia, the Aboriginal population there were very much influenced by Marcus Garvey. You mentioned the NAACP earlier. They were very much influenced early on by the early 20th century by Marcus Garvey and his sort of black liberation movements. So there's there's connections across all, there's all these international connections of you know, among indigenous people that really requires us to rethink how we understand indigeneity and to try and move away from this idea that each of these settler states has created that isolates indigenous people to within the, the the nation state that surrounds them. So, you know, we think of American Indians and don't really think anywhere else. Um, and yet you go just north of the border and there are First Nations or indigenous people in Canada and you don't make the connection that most of them are, you know, before these borders existed, they all traded and connected with each other. And then there's you know, similar, there are indigenous people in, in 
New Zealand and indigenous people in Australia. And one of the great successes of settler colonialism is isolating indigenous populations from each other. And one of the great successes of contemporary indigenous activism is pushing back against that isolation and re- making these connections and reconnections and sort of, you know, it's becoming much more empowering. And, you know, one stepping block to this was the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. But that itself was over 40 years in the making from the very first time Indigenous people went to, you know, the United Nations. But even then you can take it back to 1923 when um, Mohawk delegates approached the League of Nations so again, we've got these modern histories that have precedence in long histories. It's constantly sort of pushing back. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting to um, hear you talk about that. Just back in uh, August, um, I uh, I co-hosted a symposium on museum studies. In specifically, one of our, one of the themes of the symposium was in uh, tribal contexts. Uh, mainly in the U.S., but in also with indigenous groups around the world. And it was an interesting conversation because it was talking about efforts to what they call decolonize the museums, because museums, as we know, are, are mar- have in the past have been kind of marketed towards basically middle-class white audiences so they could kind of see, uh, you know, other cultures and all of that, but totally outside of the context of those other cultures and in a very quote unquote, safe environment <laughs> where it's all behind glass and all of that. And so the, this decolonization movement has been, a, has been an effort to try to get the museums to better represent the communities that they are supposedly preserving um, by trying to engage more with the local communities, more with the indigenous groups, have more uh, you know, be more cooperative in what types of things are being presented in the museums, what, what, how are those exhibits being described in the, um, you know, in the brochures and in the, uh, the, the, the information cards on the, on the exhibit and all of that. And so there's really this conscious effort in museums and it's even around the world, not just in the United States to try to better represent the community that was usually being othered in these museums as a way to try to, you know, bring them back to kind of the center of it, to these marginalized, silenced, underrepresented groups. We want to bring them back into the conversation a bit and try to make them less about white middle-class Western audiences and more about the communities that they're supposed to actually represent. So it's, obviously that's kind of playing out now, but it's, I imagine that type of movement is largely built on a lot of this cooperation that's been happening among indigenous groups around the world that you were just describing. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it, it, the connections and the 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 themes, not not so much themes, issues that that are being targeted or, or approached, you know, they, they go right across the board. So it's 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 the law, it's you know treaty rights, it's um, health. I know there's a there's a colleague I was spoken to at a conference a couple of years ago who was looking at. Um, collaborations between indigenous populations in the Pacific Northwest and in the Southwest of Australia on health initiatives against, you know, pushing back to reclaim health services from the settler governments. So, you know, museum studies is another component of this 
of these broader movements that people tend to think of them, you know, the most famous ones that reach the public imagine or the you know, public observation are generally right now tend to be pipelines. Um, but there are so many other components and, and areas that these these connections are being made, whether it be sort of, you know, right across the board. Yeah, this is all really interesting stuff. Um, I think you and I have talked before, and I mentioned, I think that um, my kind of primary interest during grad school was on the American West also. Yeah. And so I think we've we've kind of, even if we haven't intersected, we've kind of been running parallel to each other and kind of running in similar circles. And so I think we could talk about this all day. This is fascinating <laughs> stuff. Um, so what is your, uh, so are you currently kind of engrossed in this research about kind of the international connections or what what, what types of research are you working on right now? Currently at the minute, I'm still working on a, a, a project of um, resistance across the U.S.-Canadian border, the indigenous resistance to the U.S.-Canadian border. And and again, that's sort of, you know, something that goes, it has my starting point, which is 1924, but it's something that goes back, it also has a much longer history. You know, you can go back to... Um, you know, the Jay Treaty, Jay's Treaty in 1794. You can go back to the proclamation of the, the, the proclamation line of 1763. Uh, the various machinations of the British Empire versus the French Empire and where lines are being drawn. So the, there's border disputes constantly in, in the grand scheme of what we classify now as North American history since Europeans came over. Well, for me, with sticking with the contemporary concept, contemporary conceptualization, it's sort of from 1924 up to the present day. Um, and again, it takes a variety of moments. There's like literal border protests where people cross the border or blockaded the border or shut the border down. Or then there are, there are movements which have sort of taken the border out of consideration where they've just collaborated with each other and then worried about the repercussions later on. The 1970s, there were gas pipeline protests where you ended up with indigenous people from Canada, from what is, you know, from within Canada, um, testifying before the United States Senate, and then indigenous people from within the United States testifying before the House of Commons in um, Canada. So, you know, there's multiple cross border initiatives and collaborations between indigenous people constantly pushing back against the borders itself and that's before you then consider the those areas where the border directly intersects um indigenous territories you know the, the blackfoot confederacy on one end of the country and you know the haudenosaunee or the iroquois on the other end of the country um where it just slaps you know just cuts right through the middle of, of what is their territories and you've now got people of the same nations who are either classified as American Indian or Canadian, depending on where the borderline got drawn. You know, I'm, I'm, a lot of the research that has tended to focus on uh, the US-Mexico border in the past. It's a much more well-researched um, border. But the US-Canada border is still just as problematic for, for different reasons. So that's sort of my current research. Oh, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing where you go with that. It sounds like... Um... <laughs> on top of just the kind of the native or, or indigenous versus American government, indigenous versus Canadian government, you also have a little bit of like, um, you know, 
Balfour Declaration slash Treaty of Versailles, where we're just going to impose national borders that are going to be completely irrespective of kind of the natural boundaries of the people that actually live in that border territory. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Divisions. There were never divisions before. And so that's just, it's just, as we know, that's kind of a recipe for long-term disaster. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it does create, you know, there's, there's the, there's the the sheer amount of, of archival paperwork that is, um, dedicated to government studies of indigenous issues crossing the border is you know in and of itself you could just sort of publish you know encyclopedias on that stuff there's reams of it that just these constant studies they're doing back and forth and you know they never seem to have any solutions and then as with most governments you know sort of one government will get to one one settler government will get to a certain point of well now we will work with the indigenous population and figure this out then there's an election a new new settler government comes in and it's starting from you know starting right back at square one again so it's this constant cyclical movement of of back and forth and that's why the i think the protest and the activism itself and the changes that have been forced upon the, the changes that this activism has forced the governments to make in concession or recognition of these indigenous rights across the border is, is sort of, you know, so much more fascinating. Great. Well, that, like I said, that sounds really interesting. And I, I look forward to uh, seeing whatever comes out of it. Um, so before we go, can you tell us, uh, do you have a recommendation for us? I think there was, I was, there was one I thought of at the beginning and then, there's another one I thought of as we were going through. So I've got two books to recommend. Um, sure. The first one is the more recent one, and, and it, it sort of touches, it goes back to um, the idea of pipeline resistance. And so, you know, it, it's specifically looking at the Standing Rock versus the Coastal Access Pipeline, you know, from, a, from the uh, the last year or so of the Obama administration and the first few months of the Trump administration. Um, it's a book by Nick Estes, who's a, a Lakota um, historian, and it's called Our History is the Future. And what he does in this book is he looks at the long history of, of indigenous, resi- indigenous resistance in the framework of how, you know, the standard, what happened at Standing Rock was not just a new protest. And it's very much connected to multiple treaty infractions and multiple treaty obligations that the United States is either made and and broken or made and then ignored and so you know that there's a long so the, the, the you know the, our history is the future is this is the past and this is how we fix the present or this is you know this is where we look towards the present and it's a, it's absolutely a fascinating text um it's it you know it's it, it's a very detailed look at the, at the standing rock moment itself in 2016 but then it, it sort of adds all this historical context to it. Um, so that's a book I would very much recommend. And the other one is a slightly earlier book, and I think it's probably more relevant for a lot of people who I don't necessarily have a, a specific interest in, in, let's say, Native American history or indigenous history. And this one's called Why You Can't Teach United States History Without American Indians. So this was a 2015 anthology, came out at the University of North Carolina Press. And it's a collection of essays that look at United States history 
but within a context, you know, as we were talking about earlier, the sort of the the removal of of American Indians from history. This book and these collection of essays very much reinsert American Indi- American Indians within U.S. history. Um, argue why they are, you know, very much as much a part of U.S. history now as they ever were in the past, and you know, far more involved and far more important than what led to believe by sort of traditional, you know, traditional history. And so it's split into three parts. You've got U.S. history to, sorry, you know, U.S. history to 1877, U.S. history since 1877, and then the final part is reconceptualizing the narrative, which sort of argues that point of we need to rethink the way we tell history to include these, you know, this much broader framework of recognizing American Indians are actually integral to American, you know, to the United States history. And so I think for a more general audience of people who are maybe have a passing interest in, in American Indian history, but not so much that they want to look at, say, Nick's book, this one would be ideal as it gives, so that it takes U.S. history and embeds American Indians throughout. And again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really useful and really fascinating text. And the sort of 19 individual essays from from multiple well-respected historians in the in the. That's great. It sounds a little bit like uh, I'm sure you're familiar with um, what is it? Looking east from Indian country. Yeah, yeah. Um, similar. It sounds like it's kind of a similar. And and that I, I read that book for my general exams. You know, ten some odd years ago, <laughs> and I love that book. It was an amazing book. So I can imagine that that sounds really cool. Trying to put kind of uh, Indians back at the center of the story because that's like we've been talking about before. They've yeah. been kind of removed from the story, so it's great to to hear them being put back into the center of it. Well, I mean, it is, and it's sort of you know there are central moments where we don't think of you know like the, the Civil War. American Indians were involved in the Civil War. The last Confederate general to uh, surrender was a Cherokee um, citizen called Stan Waity, you know, who had his own um, Native American unit, and so that I mean, he's literally the last American, the last um, Confederate general in the Civil War to to uh, to surrender. And oh yeah, yeah, not many people know that. So you know, that's just a, an example of sort of you know why sort of it's such an injustice that American Indians. Have been written out of history when they're so integral to, you know, they've been part of all of it. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, my recommendation is going to. Sound, it might sound like I'm pandering or something, but this is actually <laughs> purely coincidental that I that I picked this. The other day, I picked up, um, just took off the shelf my copy of Patricia Nelson Limerick's Legacy of Conquest. I'm sure you read that yeah, at some point yeah, in, in your career, yeah. but it's it's just an amazing book. And I love this book. And that's why I've kept it since I bought it as an undergraduate about 20 some years ago. <laughs> but um, it's just, it, it's, it's an amazing book. And it, it's one of the early, not the earliest, but it's an attempt. I mean, this was written in what, 86, I think it was published 87. And so it wasn't, certainly wasn't the first challenge to Frederick Jackson Turner, but it was one of the most popular and one of kind of the most strongly argued rebuttals to the Frederick Jackson vision, Frederick Jackson Turner vision of 
of American development where, you know, the, as we all know, the frontier thesis where American, you know, white yeah. settlers moved in, they tamed the land, they brought government, they brought democracy, they, they brought industry, they <laughs> basically built uh, America. And, and one of the great, fa- great kind of components of it was that they were rebuilding America every time they stepped forward. And that's what made America great, yada, yada. But it does, it definitely plays up the idea that these settlers were moving into an empty territory and teaming it. And this, of course, was this book is all about how that, how much bunk that was with it. No, the, yeah, sure, there was some, you know, political development, all that happening in these frontier areas. But it is, but the entire history of American movement westward is conquest, it's conflict. There's, there's warfare. There's, uh, I mean, there's, physically taming the land and all of that but there's also of course all those those indians that we've been talking about yeah, that were yeah. there and so it, it's uh, <clears throat> excuse me so anyway it's, it's just always been one of my favorite history books and i just pulled it off the shelf the other day and was reminded of why it's one of my favorite and i was gonna <laughs> mention it today and then we started talking about turner anyway and so yeah. now i'm getting all excited about <laughs> about getting back into all this so <laughs> anyway the legacy of conquest the Unbroken Past of the American West by Patricia Nelson. And I, yeah, I would, I would agree with that endorsement. It's an excellent book. Yeah. It's obviously, it's it's dated in some ways. It's 30 some odd years old, so it's not perfect. But, you know, for what it was at the time, and it's well written, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's 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 a fast read. Uh, and so anyway, it's, it's, it's a good book. <laughs> so anyway, thank you. Uh, so, th- so thank you for joining me today, Paul. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Paul McKenzie Jones, I'm Rob Denning. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, or whatever else you prefer. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life, so have a good weekend.